friends, and welcome to episode 42 of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I'm here today with Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi, hi. So we have another terrific episode for you, and we're going to get in a moment to the absolutely superb Atlantic writer, Amanda Mull, uh, to have a great conversation about uh, cheer as well as college football. But before we do... A couple notes on some current happenings, especially with respect to labor and higher education. Uh, and the first one is the news that just came out today. Late, We're recording this on Labor Day, appropriately. Uh, the news that just came out that the Graduate Workers Union at the University of Michigan, GO3550, and you should follow them on Twitter, is going on an illegal strike uh, against the university to try to defend the health and safety conditions, as well as to challenge uh, racist police violence on campus, which is truly a, a remarkably laudable move. I struck twice as a graduate worker at York University in Toronto, and it was an incredibly formative experience for me. And I just have so much solidarity for the, the courage that they're demonstrating to hold the university accountable to its stated values uh, and to defend the the health and safety of everyone on campus in myriad ways. I think they're really they're putting their money, money where their mouths are in the, the most profound way possible. And I think nationally, given that the university has already stated that they uh, that the strike is an illegal strike and that there's nothing to bargain about, uh, that union needs our support across the country to make the University of Michigan understand that union busting, uh, crushing graduate workers is just not acceptable uh, and in 2020 uh, and, and we're going to help them push back. So I really want to underline that point first. And then also on the subject of higher education and uh, political action, labor action, and the, that keyword strike, we have the scholar strike, um, which I, I'm hoping as you are listening to this podcast is still taking place. It takes place on uh, the 8th, September 8th and 9th in the United States and September 9th and 10th in Canada. And it is a strike of higher education professionals, uh, a political strike in support of the movement for Black Lives and the movement against uh, police brutality, police murder in the United States of Black people uh, and white supremacy more broadly in the academy and beyond. And it's a movement inspired by athletic workers, right? In the WNBA and the NBA and Major League Baseball who took labor actions and kind of have inspired academics to, to follow in their footsteps in this case and to try to make a really hopefully powerful statement about the fact that, um, that tremendous solidarity exists in the academy uh, among workers who are, are not willing to accept the status quo of white supremacy in U.S. society and in our institutions uh, and, and in policing most of all. Yeah, and you know, the only thing that I'll add is especially with the graduate student strike, just like how incredibly brave they are. I mean, the, you know, anyone who's been in graduate school on any level knows how precarious your situation is and how much 
your your fear the your hopes for a future career whether that's in academia or not really hinges on you you know probably completing your degree and also getting some kind of you know letters of rec even if you're you know going to a job outside of academia and just you know they're not getting paid much as it is and so the threat of even losing the little you know stipend health insurance etc that they get as a result of being graduate workers i mean this is just it's just, it's just so brave. I just have so much respect for them. So, so as Nathan said, I just want to reiterate so much solidarity to them and so much solidarity to all the scholars that are going to be striking, doing teachings, et cetera, over for the rest of the week. So with that said, um, let's send it to Amanda Mull uh, in our interview. has been a writer for The Atlantic since 2018, covering health from a variety of perspectives such as beauty, nutrition, work-life habits, and importantly for us, sports. Her work has appeared in Racked, Rolling Stone, Elle, Glamour, and many others. We are absolutely delighted to be talking to her today about her incisive piece from January 2020, and let me just say that seems like 10 years ago, Um, but the piece is about the Netflix docuseries Cheer, titled Cheer is Built on a Pyramid of Broken Bodies. We will also talk to her about her more recent article, College Football's Great Unraveling. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So one question that we always ask our guests is, how are you doing with the pandemic and anti-racist uprisings in Brooklyn, New York? Um, I'm doing pretty well, I think. I had a period of not doing so well at the very beginning when things were really, really bad in New York. Um, but the the vibe here lately is pretty, pretty positive. People are trying to work together. Uh, you know, support their communities, support uh, people around them. There have been a lot of mutual aid efforts here that I have found very encouraging. Um, And, you know, it feels like everyone in New York is trying to just enjoy the warm weather while we have it, enjoy the low low virus transmission while we have it, and uh, not think too hard about winter right now. Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense. And you all just like really like hunker down hardcore for so long. So I just can only imagine that people are like, whoo, you know, like we at least got this far and kind of happy about that. Right. The uh, the experience here, especially for the past several months, has been a lot different than, uh, you know, anecdotes that I have heard about people's experiences elsewhere because uh, people are being very cooperative here. And I think that there's something about living in a dense city that makes you aware of how tied your welfare is to the people around you uh, that, that you don't get in, in as visceral of a way if you live in some place, it's a little bit more spread out mm-hmm. uh, or a little bit more car dependent. So I, I feel like New York in particular, it was sort of, philosophically primed to work together on something like this but you get like very very high mask adherence here um i can't remember the last time i saw i didn't see some or i saw someone who wasn't wearing a mask in a business uh in a grocery store or something like that so so there's it's it's i wouldn't say it's pleasant but it's encouraging in some ways to see everybody uh 
work together and, and, and care about their neighbors. Yeah, definitely. Um, so before we get into cheer and your piece about it, it'd be really great to hear a bit about your process and the aims for your work. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you, you write widely about health from the Weight Watchers app for children and kids' diets to football and cheer. So what typically draws you to a topic? And what would you say is your MO when you research and write about an issue? Um, I, because my beat is so broad, and I, I am really lucky to be able to generally write about anything that I find interesting or, or anything that I think might be worth a story. Uh, the Atlantic is, is very encouraging in that way. Um, so because of that, I sort of try to trust my instincts that if, if something strikes me as interesting or, um, or odd, uh, or different than it was in the immediate past, uh, I just try to follow those instincts and, and see why, why something might be sticking out to me. Um, and that usually, you know, that, that then leads to a lot of reading, a lot of looking around on social media to see how other people are reacting to similar things, um, or to the, to similar, uh, dynamics. Um, the thing that got me with cheer, uh, was that I had spent a couple of weeks probably reading everybody's really positive reactions to it on the internet. And then I, I got the flu and ended up staying at home one weekend. And I was like, well, why, why don't I watch the show that everybody's talking about? Um, I probably wouldn't have watched it otherwise. Um, and then I started watching this show and it, and it just, my impression of it ran so counter to everything I had read about it. Hmm. Um, and, and like the longer I watched it, the more irritated I got by that. Um, and when there's tension between how you experience something and how people talk about that thing, there is often a good story, I think. Um, and I don't write a lot of TV criticism or movie criticism, but this is one of those situations where I got that feeling where there is something there that's not being discussed. Um, and that is always like a, a big red flag to me that something might be a story. Um, and that, that sort of like dynamic emerges in all kinds of topics uh, in all kinds of disciplines. So, uh, so that is like, I think the animating principle of how I decide on stories and how I start digging into stuff. Uh, and figuring out where that tension is is usually the um, the center of my of my research. I frankly really want to dig into uh, your your piece and your kind of view the sort of the sort of meta dimensions of your view here that you're already alluding to because that's the most interesting part for me. But we probably should say a few things about uh, cheer for those who are less familiar with it. Um, and please, I, both of you can jump in and, and fill in any blanks on things I'm missing here because it's been, uh, I mean, during this pandemic, it's been a few months since I've now watched cheer. And uh, as everyone in the world knows in these few months, it seems like lifetimes have passed. Um, but uh Basically, what the documentary, the Netflix documentary is doing is taking us through a season at uh, Navarro College, uh, a junior college in Texas that is a national champion and really the, the national power 
in cheerleading and college cheerleading, and it's trying to chronicle their attempt to repeat as national champions um, and, and take us through kind of the, I don't know, the nuts and bolts of what the sport looks like, the challenges, the kind of, and the ways that, that I think a lot of framing around, although I think it's worth talking about how we even understand the show to be framed, because I don't think it's necessarily as obvious as one might assume. Um, but, you know, like trying to create at least some kind of narrative, almost like an American dream type narrative where we have these, um, a lot of athletes who come from extremely difficult circumstances within um, the, you know, horrified, hor horrifying, racialized political economy of the United States um, and view this opportunity as sort of a, a way to um, transform their lives in some sense. Uh, and it then focuses around this coach figure, this sort of maybe hero coach figure. And that's a real question we will definitely be talking about, um, who has clearly shaped this program from nothing and created this national power and has huge demands for the athletes um, that work for her. Am I, am I missing anything here that we should fill in? No, I, I will say that when you said that I wrote the piece in January 2020, like in my head, I was like, that's not possible. That was three years ago. Right. <laughs> but I guess it was January. Yeah, that's, that's, like, that's like pre-Tiger King when we all went through that phase, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I guess the only thing that I would add is that it is showing, it also shows how the entire town is really, how, I guess I should say how the program is sort of enmeshed in this entire town and how it fits within this culture of like, you know, a big time, you know, a big sport in terms of lots of success fits in sort of like a smaller town and also how the team sort of fits. So it's about team dynamics, which you mentioned, it's about how these athletes coming from different backgrounds fit in together and how they see themselves kind of fitting together with this coach and within this broader narrative, right? You can sort of see the athletes trying to fit their story stories into what they think the coach wants them to do. And also the sort of team's trajectory as being this like championship team for a really long time. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. That's great. All right. So now, now what we're going to spend most of the rest of this episode doing is kind of digging into how cheer tells this story, what that story is and what we actually see in this show. And I, I think it was really, it's perfect. Uh, Amanda, you started with this framing of why you got into it in the first place, because there was so much buzz about this show. It was an incredibly popular show. Um, and, and I'm going to actually quote a little bit from your piece, which is aptly titled Cheer is Built on a Pyramid of Broken Bodies. You explain in the piece, and I quote at some length because I think it's really important, this passage to me really jumped out. While watching the show, I felt as if I had been pranked. I had given it a try after watching Twitter explode with effusive praise for Navarro's athletes and the team's take-no-prisoners female leader. Fans got one thing right. Cheer's hardworking, eager-to-please athletes are indeed transcendent. But Cheer doesn't let their victories shine. Instead, the series tells one of the oldest, darkest stories in American sports. Of athletes with no pay and little support breaking their bodies again and again, all for the greater glory of an authority figure they dare not question. End quote. So the reason I had to quote here at length is because your analysis really strongly intersects with my own in a way that I find, frankly, unusual in the academy and practically unheard of uh, in the sports media complex. The way in which the sacrifice of the athlete's body in high-performance spectator sport 
which is so often, and this is something that people miss, but you did not miss, so often under or uncompensated, right? Especially if we're thinking about a college sport industrial complex. Um, it's so often under or under uncompensated, but it fuels the political economy of sport by satiating the desires of fans, right? I mean, this is where you're picking up on what the athletes are doing and you're picking up on how this is doing something for fans, right? It's evoking this reaction in people en masse that makes them so excited about the show. So all of these things are happening at the same time. And for me, that's not coincidental. That is exactly how this entire system always works right and so when i watch cheer it was so striking to me because that's not usually I, I am typically looking at men's sport like football um i'm not looking at i haven't traditionally looked at a sport like cheerleading and yet when i watched this show it was just like all of these themes were leaping out to me in exactly the kind of way that you're articulating here so i would just i'd be thrilled if you could perhaps elaborate, elaborate a bit on this point in terms of your views of elite spectator sport more broadly and then also how cheer specifically evoked that response in you. And then maybe a third point uh, which is that, if I have it correct, I think that your piece in turn, in the kind of cycle and the churn of the uh, media and social media world, you were responding to how fans had gotten really upset, uh, excited about this show. And so you want to push back a little bit on that in a way that I think, again, is fundamentally necessary and was a critical intervention. But then there was pushback, if I have it correct, to your piece in turn, because those fans didn't necessarily like the kind of reading that you had. So I'd be also be really interested to hear you kind of speak to that a little. Yeah. Uh, my, <clears throat> it's probably important to say first that my reading of the show and my reaction to the show is informed uh, by my own uh, college football fandom. Uh, you know, I am from the Southeast. I went to, university of georgia uh my dad went to university of georgia i was raised a college football fan so uh and i am a college football fan uh with all of the problematic bits that that entails um but knowing intimately the the many many ethical and safety and social and cultural problems there are with college sports i went into this documentary series expecting um sort of a feel-good story uh, based on the, the reactions of, of people I follow who don't really follow sports and came out of it just absolutely aghast because the, the something that creates a lot of problems in college football is the cult of the coach um, where you get a, a transient uh, student-athlete population that uh, you, know, you can have a star for a couple of years, but the, the consistent thing about a long-term successful program and the most public face of a long-term successful program in, in college football and in uh, any other college sport is the coach. Um, so you end up with, with that person being the face of the program, being the, the person that the fans go back to over and over again. And uh, with the concept of the student athlete and the idea that of amateurism and that, uh, you know, that these students are, are all just passing through, um, you get sort of the, um, dynamic of these athletes all sort of contributing to the legacy of this, you know, in the, in the case of college football, highly paid, I don't know how well paid the cheer coaches, um, mm you get all of these unpaid, mostly anonymous, you know, you don't remember a lot of, a lot of names 
years later from any particular team. Um, unpaid athletes contributing ultimately to the legacy of this this one highly paid, well well known leader. Um, so you get, and it, it's just the exact same thing in cheer. Someone who is uh, forming their own legacy on the backs of unpaid labor. Uh, yeah, so you you get these uh, these high profile coaches that that are long tenured in their jobs, sometimes for ten years or more, um, building their own legacies on the trans- transient unpaid labor of of athletes doing ex- extraordinarily physically dangerous work. Um, and that's the you know that's the exact same thing that happens in cheer. Um, so I think that my background in college football fandom gave me a much a much better context to read cheer than uh, than maybe its its first wave of viewers, uh, which at least in my experience, based on people I was I was watching react to it on the internet, were were people who don't follow college sports and don't have any context on the labor issues uh, or on the the cultural issues with it. Um, so. So that's how I ended up feeling strongly about cheer. Um, and whenever I, I feel that strongly about something, I usually end up writing about it. In this instance, I had fired off some tweets about it. Um, <laughs> Always a good way to start a piece. That's how we do it. <laughs> that's the writing process these days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you fire off some tweets, you get a Slack message from your editor who has heard from one of his bosses about uh, the desire for a piece on said tweets. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was I was homesick. I had the I had the flu. Um, I had just gotten back from uh, a convention in Las Vegas, um, and had I think gotten the flu on the flight home. Um, so I was laid up for a couple of days, and I was like, I don't know if anybody will be interested in this by the time I get to write about it. But and I expected someone to get to this story before me, you know, because it seemed so obvious to me. Um, but nobody, nobody did it. Nobody did the story. So a week later, I ended up writing this thing, and immediately upon, immediately upon publishing it, there was uh, like a huge wave of sort of relief that someone had finally said it. Like the the initial reaction and the overall reaction, I will say, was overwhelmingly positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that people had. Uh, you know, had had tried an episode of, or two of this, or watched the entire thing, and been really sort of confused by how different their feelings about it were than the feelings of uh, of other pieces that had been written about it, of other people they saw tweeting about it, things like that. Um, but you know, there there's a period of time in which like a cultural thing becomes well received, and it is very difficult to be the first person to step out. And be like, actually, I think this thing sort of sucked. <laughs> I don't know what y'all were watching. Um, yeah. uh, because there's that first wave of an effusive phrase. Um, and, but like, it was just so terrible. It was so difficult to watch. And so sort of like, it did such a good job illustrating some of the, the most basic problems with sports, with college sports especially. Um, that I was like, okay, well, I, you know, I should write about this if the story is still here. Uh, and it was, and then there, there was some pushback, um, to the story, of course, but, um, I thought it was pretty limited. Um, I mean, 
part of that is probably just being someone who writes every week for a national outlet and just is used to people not liking things. Um, so, so the, the, the ratio of reaction to, uh, between people being like, finally someone said it versus being like, you don't know anything about cheerleading. Uh, this is actually good for them to get injured so much. <laughs> um, was uh like it, it was the the pushback i thought was relatively minor uh that's, we're not nearly as calloused as you are that's what it comes down yeah. to <laughs> so, well so. and i and i felt like I, I i tried to do like a deep dive to sort of see what the reaction had at least been like on twitter when it came out and when you were tweeting about it and yet it seems like a lot of it was that people who were, were like on the inside people who were in the cheerleading realm who like you said were saying like oh this is just how it is they need to learn how to push themselves and how to be mentally tough and all this stuff and i'm like you're just reinforcing everything that she said. Like, and you're also like proving how bad it is that it's like this sort of cult, like we've talked about this elsewhere. It's sort of like this cult-like mentality where everybody in the inside believes that this is okay. And it takes like outsiders sometimes to be like, whoa, what the heck is going on? Right. Yeah. And like, this is, is, is such a common theme and common dynamic in abusive systems, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in the fashion industry for like 10 years at the beginning of my career. And the fashion industry is like, is just built on lots and lots of, of problems of, of various uh, class and race and uh, economic situations. Uh, but the fashion industry is, is you know, really gatekept um, and everybody has to do unpaid internships everybody has to take a job that pays you $27,000 a year for the first three years that you work there um and even people who have been through that system who it it you know decimated their finances uh you know ruined most of their 20s uh did not give them any long-term prospects of of stable or more remunerative uh work um for a long time even they would be like well if I had to do it then everybody has to do it this is just how it is um, and, and when you've been, been through a system like that, and when you have sort of convinced yourself that the necessity of that, that that system must have been necessary, otherwise, why did you suffer? Um, it becomes really, really difficult to, to become someone that is, is instead saying that, no, this system that I suffered in is, is, is not worth it, is not necessary, is not uh, beneficial to the people who go through it. Uh, people just have like a really, really difficult time making that turn. And, and in, in, in sports, it requires you to reevaluate the, um, the intentions and the, the goodness of uh, the people that you put a ton of trust in and, and in who might not have treated you well, but who, you, you know, you convinced yourself they were. Um, and reevaluate, reevaluating those relationships and those power structures is really, really difficult, I think. And re- and if you've gone all the way through that system and then become somebody who is at the top of that power structure, you know, being uh, self-aware about how you're using that power and whether or not you deserve that power uh, and how that power might affect the people you wield it against uh, is really difficult. Yeah, that's a powerful point. And I mean, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of, I mean, it just so, it seems so clear how 
we have all of these sites of just hyper exploitation. Like what we're just, we're just kind of casually talk. We're supposed to be just talking about cheer, but then it's like every example reinforces the same point, right? Like, okay, we're talking about cheerleading. Let's talk for a minute about college football, right? Uh, same thing. Let's talk about fashion. Same thing. We had Dirk Hayhurst on the show. He described minor league baseball as a cult, basically. I mean, that was, that was his exact, that was the language he used. And it was the same narrative. And this idea that like, this is what is so damn insidious about the American dream, right? And I mean, it's like, I, I don't know. I spent a lot of time learning about the American dream in my American literature undergraduate class. And maybe like it's, it's never left me in the way it should have. But it's like anywhere you look in U.S. society, it's really disturbing the extent to which this ideology justifies these systems of brute exploitation, right? Because there is this idea that if you work hard enough and it, this is what you said about fashion, right? You put in your time, put in your unpaid internships and it's the same in the media industry, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, it's everywhere you look, we see the exact same thing. People grinding and grinding and grinding. And and we started the show by talking about uh, what's happening at the University of Michigan right now, graduate workers on strike right? It's the same thing. The academic system is exactly the same. We have people doing, again, like this, um, basically um, indenturing themselves for years to the universities in the hopes that they will get a job that simply doesn't exist anymore. I mean, thanks to the pandemic, like we were already saying that, and now they're just, there's nothing left. Um, But the work is still being done, right? People are still doing the work and it's producing these commodities and these, in the sense that we're talking today, mostly these commodity spectacles that people adore and that fuel the American imagination and in, in these massive industries. Um, I don't know. I just, that's kind of like, I just want people to see that everywhere, right? Like these, we can look at any site you want, but the experience is the same, right? That's the real lesson here. It's about harm and labor and the fact that like solidarity is destroyed by this fundamentally alienating individualist mentality that is the American dream, instead of thinking about how we need to work together to push back against these systems. Uh, And I mean, you know, cheer, I mean, steering us back to cheer, and I'm sure, I think, Johanna, you probably have something to say here, but like steering us back to cheer, this this is what cheer is actually about. Mm Yeah, definitely. And so um, we, while we definitely will get to, we've already mentioned before, we'll definitely get to the coach, Monica Aldama, because she's such a huge, huge sort of figure and force and are made to be a huge force in the show. We thought it might be helpful to kind of walk uh, listeners through some of the more troublesome and horrific incidents, which Amanda, you mentioned in your piece. And in particular, uh, you focus, and these were really the ones that stuck out to me. Um, the two of the more explicit examples are when a male athlete named TT, he, he comes to practice after having sort of defied his coach's orders by competing for the club team. She had told him not to do it. And he comes to practice and his body is, you can just tell, is like destroyed. Um, He hurt his back and he's already saying how much it's bothering him. And she forces him to continue or she forces him to practice and then continue practicing. And you see her kind of like glaring at him from the side. And and you can see him as he's catching flyers over and over and over again, that he's continuing to hurt himself. And at the end, he's just like sobbing. Um, And then the other example is when um, a female flyer named Morgan, she hurts her ribs after being, I think it's from being caught so many times. I think that's what it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And she um, goes to the ER and she goes in secret because she doesn't want her coach to find out. Um, The doctor prescribes her muscle relaxers. She doesn't want to take them because she wants to still be able to practice. 
And so she goes home and then her coach, um, Aldama, is frustrated when she hears about Morgan having done this the next day. And, you know, as it was, we've talked about, like, this is a podcast about sporting harm, and we obviously have our own thoughts about it, but we really want to hear more about what you think in terms of why did these instances stand out to you and what struck you as wrong about them? Well, I think that those two particular instances struck out because, I mean, first of all, their severity. Um, you have you have young athletes who very clearly need uh, serious medical attention. Uh, who are either denied it uh, and, and forced to continue practicing or who feel like they have to deny it to themselves in order to uh, fulfill the expectations set by their, uh, you know, their uh, parental figure in this situation. Uh, they look at Aldama as a mother. Um, so you have these situations that are, that are obviously very, very severe. Um, and then, you also get this really insidious situation where um, it's clear that both athletes know that they are not supposed to seek uh, adequate treatment or adequate, adequate rest for their injuries um, where they understand the dynamics clearly without having to be told explicitly uh, not, not to seek medical care. Um, and then you have, uh, in the situation of TT, it was particularly disturbing, I thought, because uh, he was in a position within the group that, that, that meant his injury, if he could not perform at 100%, was putting the safety and, and health of uh, a lot of the other gym, gymnasts at risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he's catching people who are doing stunts, then if he's not at 100%, and if he's been being forced to practice in order to teach him a lesson, about you know his priorities or whatever uh then he is potentially creating a very dangerous situation through uh for other people who do not have the opportunity to opt out uh, of that situation and opt out of that risk to their health uh because like a, a huge source of injury in gymnastics is being dropped um and a and somebody who's supposed to somebody with a back injury who's supposed to catch people would clearly i think exacerbate that risk and then with Morgan, you have uh, the situation where she had been warned by uh, the emergency room doctors that if she kept practicing, that she could puncture a lung, that she could, uh, you know, have very, very serious internal injuries, that she could potentially die. Uh, and you have you have her understanding that the dynamic of the team is that she is not allowed to be concerned about that. In, in any way that interrupts the, uh, you know, the normal flow of activities. Uh, and you can tell that she's right because you see Aldama's reaction to it, uh, to finding out that she went to the hospital, which is just annoyance. Mm-hmm. Um, and she goes on practicing anyway. So, so in both of these situations, you've got athletes who we learn, you know, in their stories, in the, the arc of the, of the, the series that neither of them have, well, TT's mother, I don't know if his mother was involved or not, but you learn, I can't remember. It's been January, feels like 8,000 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> All good. Um, <laughs> um, but you hear about a lot of these athletes and about uh, Morgan specifically, that uh, 
that you know their parents are either uh, have either passed away or they're they're not in the picture or they have a strained relationship with them uh, or they they just didn't have a lot of money growing up and sort of you know had to had to fend for themselves while their parents were stuck in some some sort of ridiculous labor situation. Um, so you have you have kids that are that are seeking approval, and you can you sort of watch their coach manipulate that mm-hmm. and in ways that put people at very clear, serious danger to their health um, that I don't think you could really argue away. Because uh, in a lot of situations in, you know, in cheerleading practice and in football too, you see this across sports. Uh, people have, you know, feel fine hand waving somebody's sprained ankle or twisted knee or something like that as ju- it just being like a inevitable outcome of physical competition. And some of it is. Uh, but in these two situations, it was clear, clearly they were, these two athletes were put at heightened risk because of the attitude of the coach. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think this sort of, like I said, we're going to get to the coach in a second, but I think like her role, like she is just like so actively coercing them, you know, like her, and it's, it's clear that like her disapproval just means you know, it was like devastating to all the athletes. And, you know, one, one other thing that I was thinking of while you were talking and, you know, my, my memory of the timeline of all of everything that happens in the show is fuzzy. And I only watched it like a month, a half, month and a half ago. Um, but if I remember correctly, I want to say like the reason, the reason why that Morgan is even promoted or sort of like in the position that she's in as being the central person is like a central flyer is because so many of the other flyers had had concussions. I think. I think that's correct. Yes, she she is not. I don't know what the terminology in, in uh, cheerleading is, but she is not the first string flyer. Um, the other girls were were so injured that uh, that she, I think, felt like she was getting like an opportunity to prove herself uh, and to to gain a level of attention and approval from uh from her coach that she normally doesn't have access to mm-hmm. um and i think that uh in that situation you get like the like the active coercion that you can see from the coach and then you also just get the fundamentally coercive situation in which uh she has an opportunity that she feels like she has to nail otherwise another one will not come her way yeah. Um, well, so let's let's continue on that because I think that that's that's the, that's the thing we want to talk about here. The the way in which I, I don't know. I mean, I, I use the word a lot, and maybe I overuse it, but I mean, it seems like Aldama is exploiting this vulnerability ultimately to the end she has, which is um, she's like she's instrumentalizing it essentially and transforming it into this kind of fuel for performance right? And for the team's performance. And like, we even, I feel like we get this messaging throughout the series, um, sort of saying like, well, yeah, like a a kid like Morgan may not be the most technically sound, but she has the right kind of personality um, for it. And what they're saying there is like, she's desperate. She has the desperation to please uh, and in fact, Aldama describes her as a people pleaser, and what she and then says that she she tries to work with that aspect of Morgan's personality, and that's a really nice and euphemistic way of saying right that she is taking that desperate need for um, you know parental nurture, 
basically, um, and and transforming it into fuel for performance success. And and that seems kind of abusive to me. Um, I'm curious if you agree, like to what extent do you see her, what I would say, Aldama's self-framing as a quote-unquote parental coach who helps vulnerable athletes um, which is uh, which is absolutely how she is framed at many points in the series by the athletes, I think by herself, et cetera, by members of the community. To what extent would you say that that sort of parental framing might actually exacerbate what I, and I think Johanna, would certainly call her abusive coaching style, which is very reminiscent of things we've been tracking in the world of gymnastics, actually? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the the attempt to centralize oneself as a parental figure over somebody for whom you're not an actual parent is almost always abusive or coercive in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, that especially in situations of competition and in situations of labor, um, you were generally not doing that for altruistic means uh, because like, what does a parent have ultimately over their minor children is it's control. Um, you have final authority in in the, the direction of their life and the decisions they make, and you know the uh, the course of things uh, in a lot of ways. And you know, electing yourself someone's parent, uh, and especially the the parent of a of an adult and the parent of someone who is not in a situation in which they can exercise all of their rights as an adult, I think, um, you know, they can't get paid for their labor, first of all. Uh, and, and secondly, they, uh, most of her charges are in precarious family and, uh, economic situations. So they have, a lot of them are going to have trouble opting out of a system like that, mm-hmm. even if they recognized it as abusive and recognized it as, uh, as as harmful uh because if you're you know and this is the case with with a lot of college athletes i think that if you're in a situation in which your ability to play a sport and to deal with injury and to deal with uh coaches and and to deal with situations like that not only keeps you in school but it keeps you housed it keeps you fed Mm -hmm. um gives you access to dorms and dining halls and things like that, that if you uh that if you went back to your normal life it might be harder to feed and house yourself um that that is not not a situation in which you have the uh you know the full spectrum of your of decision making available to you um and it's very clear i think in in this instance that the coach holds that over them uh in ways that are both explicit and not um but you get this type of dynamic in uh implemented in in more traditional labor situations too uh the idea that the the company is your family the company is like a family Mm -hmm. um really uh is something that people will try to convince you of in order to make you feel bad about complaining about anything Mm -hmm. Uh, make you feel bad about pushing back against authority figures make you feel like you are not uh, being a good family member if you create any kind of trouble. Um, they're asking you to have a, a level of loyalty and a level of care and a level of uh, emotional commitment to something that should fundamentally not be 
asking those things of you. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not a family. It's your cheerleading coach at the college you go to that you, <laughs> that, yes. that you, it's not your family that you trade your physical labor in or, for an education and a dorm room. Um, or you, you know, go into work and trade your uh, labor for a paycheck by which you pay for your apartment and your food, hopefully. Um, so I think that that kind of framing is always coercive and it's especially coercive in a situation in which, you know, these kids can't go get another job. Mm-hmm. They can't, you know, they can't send out applications and, and go on uh, interviews and, and freely move their labor to a, to another uh, organization if they feel like it, uh, or if the, the organization they're with isn't serving them anymore. So you've got a fundamentally unequal relationship um, that you're asking these people to participate in. And then you're trying to, mask that inequality and make it more difficult to talk about by uh by emotionally manipulating the people that you're uh that you're coaching basically absolutely i mean you really couldn't have put it more clearly that this issue of when an authority figure blurs blurs these lines right when there should be really concrete lines that the coach is in charge of setting up between yourself and your athletes. And like, you know, you know, I will contact you between these hours and not other hours of the day. You know, I will make sure that your health and safety are taken care for. And clearly that's not something that she considers to be part of her purview. But then, as you said, she really pulls on like the emotional, it's the emotional abuse, the emotional manipulation of really pulling on the heartstrings of like, oh, you know, I care about you. I want you to be the best person. This is going to help you in your life. But then of course, the reality is that it's like not only are they subjecting their bodies to this and not only are they like willing to really severely hurt themselves. And, you know, like with TT in his back, like who knows he's in his early twenties, who knows how much is going to impact him the rest of his life, right? Like he may have back issues forever long after he's gone. And then, you know, with some of these athletes wanting to go on and be coaches themselves, if this is the environment that they've been practicing within for years, then the odds that they may also adopt these similar tactics are, are significant, right? Because they, they've seen it modeled to them and therefore this is what they know and this is what they think they've like thrived within. Right. You, you end up in a situation where, um, and this, is, this goes back to our point before, but you end up in a situation where... Uh, everybody you're around in the system in which you have you have lived for years is one that just really valorizes suffering Mm -hmm. um that that valorizes it and that uh asserts that it is not only uh part of the sport but necessary in order for you to grow as a human being in order to be a good human being you must suffer um and if you you are within that system and you you feel yourself suffering and you feel yourself you know having a bad time and, and being upset and being physically in pain and being emotionally in pain and feeling like you don't have any choices and you're stuck uh, and then getting through that if you if you believe in the, this value system that that says that that experience is necessary in order to be a whole virtuous um, upright citizen. Um, then of course you are going to grow up to be 
a person who who enforces that idea on the people below you. It's very hard to break out of that because part of suffering as virtue uh, is being suspicious of those who who seek to suffer less, um, which makes it really hard to build solidarity within these types of organizations. It makes it really really difficult to to organize uh, or to or for players to to come together and uh, and assert their rights and assert that they're suffering too much because the entire value system that you're put in from the time that you're five years old, six years old for a lot of these athletes uh, is at its core about suffering as is virtue mm-hmm. and and suffering as is valor. Um, so in that situation. Uh, you know, if you and if you hear that for years and years and years from the person that's that your impar- that your parents have entrusted you with, and the person that that is trying to you know help you win and help you um, succeed, that this suffering is necessary. Somebody telling you suddenly that it's not is just challenging your entire value system and the way that you have com- compartmentalized your suffering and uh, and made peace with it. Uh, and that's like a really threatening, a really psychologically threatening thing. Uh, and I think that that's why it's it's really, really difficult to um, to break people out of this who are actively engaged in sports, uh, who are on rosters or who are young coaches that have an opportunity to do better by the people uh, that they're charged with overseeing. Uh, because like all of your suffering is tied up in the in the righteousness of that value system. Absolutely. That thank you for just really like tying it together and like clarifying all of this. Cause like this, this the, the fact that you're like tying it to citizenship and that like we teach young kids how to be citizens by thinking that they need to totally subject really every single aspect of their physical and mental bodies to someone who portrays themselves as like a parental figure, but who's like really, you know, cold and, you know, doesn't actually look out for their health. And that if they suffer, their suffering will pay off and they will be, you know, it will be virtuous and they will be heroes, right? It's this whole like narrative of like, this is what sports can do for you as an individual. And this is what sports does for us as a society. Um, yeah, I just think that that's absolutely excellent. And like, God, if I can get my students to like walk out of my class questioning that narrative, that would be such a huge win. That's one of my goals for this semester. So we'll see. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I, I want to talk a bit about, uh, what you mentioned in your piece about the governance of cheerleading, because it's so interesting. Um, and you note how cheerleading is not governed by the NCAA, but is loosely, like very loosely, it seems, overseen by the hands-off National Cheerleaders Association. And as listeners know, we are absolutely not fans of the NCAA, like at all, <laughs> at all. Same. <laughs> you don't, you don't say, Johanna. You don't say. Huh? I'm not sure if our listeners would agree with you. <laughs> um, but there is like a, this is an interesting and sort of important issue about the role that governing bodies of sport can do can can play in reducing a sports danger factor, right? And the idea that the NCAA might actually play a role in mitigating any kind of danger is something that's unsettling, but like, I think this, I think cheerleading could be a a potential example because the NCA is just so awful. 
Um, and so, so as evidence, you cite this really alarming statistic in your piece from the American Academy of Pediatrics about how cheerleading caused 65% of quote, catastrophic injuries that female athletes encounter from sports in the U S from 1982 to 2009. And this is just like a heck of a statistic, just like truly awful, um, and you say that how the NCA's um, inadequate safety rules, you, you sort of imply that it contributes to the sport's outright dangerous character. So to what extent do you think, knowing what we all know about the, how the NCAA has approached college football and the pandemic and safety measures broadly, to what extent do you think that the NCAA might make cheerleading safer? One of the most unsettling experiences of watching cheer was was well first realizing that obviously it wasn't the NCAA governing governing it uh because you you get into that storyline with one of the cheerleaders who who has outside endorsements who um who does paid appearances things like that so that was my you know as someone who has spent their entire life watching college football uh, the first thing I did when that started happening was look up what the governing structure of collegiate <laughs> cheerleading is, uh, because you know college football fans uh, are pretty clear on what the rules around outside endorsements and paid appearances are um, in the NCAA. And then realizing that it wasn't the NCAA, and that the NCAA might actually improve college cheerleading by getting involved in it was really unsettling because I, I have been a, you know, a, a pretty vociferous public uh, critic of the NCAA. I think that they're, it's the organization deserves to be disbanded. It's terrible for college athletes. It's terrible for college football players in, in particular, and uh, has perpetuated decades and decades and decades of harm against unpaid uh, workers. That being said, <laughs> <laughs> The the situation with uh, with with any kind of uh, safety governance in college cheerleading seems so awful that just like basics the basics of uh, you know setting uh, setting limits on how on how much athletes can be required to practice both in season and out of season setting uh, standards on what kinds of stunts can be performed uh, setting you know just like the basics of a safety outline uh, that, that don't doesn't really appear to be there with the NCA um, or the National Cheerleaders Association, um, I think would be helpful. Because uh, as I as I got further into this, I found that at the, some of the junior high and high school level uh, cheerleading in the U.S., there are local uh, you know local sports leagues, uh, school districts, things like that. That, uh, that put restrictions on what kinds of stunts cheerleaders are able to do uh, depending on what division they're in and, and things like that. Because the one of the, the big problems is just resourcing and, and uh, you know, responsible coaching. So you've got a, a situation in which uh, at the collegiate level, a very, very tiny college with, with very few resources, clearly from watching, um, from watching the show, uh, Navarro, uh, is doing the the most dangerous, most difficult, most uh, most advanced types of uh, stunts because the, those doing those stunts is incentivized uh, under the scoring 
situation for uh, for college cheerleading, and they want to compete against Division One uh, giant, well resourced uh, schools. Um, so you've got this this team with one full time coach, no full time trainers, uh, you know, a bare bones uh, sports training staff at the college itself, um, and just very very little skilled oversight. Um, having these athletes, nonetheless, do the same extremely dangerous stunts that much, much better supported athletes are doing uh, because the scoring system of the sport requires it um, in order for them to be competitive. And it's very clear that the most important thing to this team is to win championships over these other schools. So um, setting some sort of standard on the size of the school and, and what it is allowed to do as far as stunts would be helpful, I think. Um, setting boundaries on on practice time, things like that, like the very basics that the NCAA uh, does in order to guarantee any sort of consistent structure to the lives of college athletes would would be a step in the right direction for cheerleading. I think. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that's that's a very convincing argument, uh, as loath as I might be to say uh, that the yeah. NCAA has I, a role here. I hate here. making it, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, okay, now I I want to pivot here for a minute because I think there's a really interesting dimension now when we're sort of thinking through these questions of abuse, harm, sport. I, I think like what what I would say are like the kind of imperatives in general of capitalist sport. But then in the intersection with gender, if we're thinking about Aldama specifically. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of your critiques, which which I think we agree with, it's a, it's very compelling, uh, is that the show seems to, at least to some extent, or at least or maybe the fans of the show, again, that's a kind of reader response question, but how the, the in some way, the phenomenon of cheer celebrates Aldama's tough-as-nails coaching approach and depicts her in what you call, I think rightly, I think characterizing it in this way, uh, a girl boss hero, right? Um, now, there's there's a lot to say here. So I do want you ultimately to sort of explain for uh, our listeners what you mean by girl boss hero, which is often reserved for female business leaders. And, and I would say, like, you know, think about the Amy Klobuchar types as well, right? If we've heard, we've heard about Amy Klobuchar and the kind of way that she has, I mean, on the one hand, like, you know, a hero in the sense that she is a powerful woman, obviously, in the Senate and almost, uh, you know, a presidential candidate in the United States. But at the, by the same token, like the kind of flip side, very similarly to Obama, is like a lot of stories about, um, what again, I think are fairly stated as abusive treatment of staff members uh, in her office, for instance. Uh, recently, we saw the Texas Tech women's basketball coach, um, yeah. Marlene Stallings, lose her job because of report many reports from players about uh, abusive behavior on that team and that team's culture. Um, now, what I'm trying to get at here is it seems like this raises important questions about dynamics of gender, violence, power, sport, and capitalism more broadly. Like there's a lot of things there I'm trying to hold up at the same time. (laughs) But, you know, the question is, would we be holding Aldama accountable in the same way if she was a man? And to what extent does that matter? And I, I'm really not posing these as leading questions or as rhetorical questions. I think it's really difficult because I feel a visceral reaction to this stuff. Like, and I do think, 
you know, I would like to think that, you know, I am calling out Dabo Swinney, for instance, constantly for being abusive. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that that's the general discourse around Dabo Swinney or college football, men's college football. I don't think we're talking about the fact that it's, it's systematic abuse, in my opinion. Um, it's celebrated in the exact way that you've described it earlier uh, in just brilliant terms. You, you put it, and I want to come back to your quote, you, you called it suffering as virtue, right? I mean, like we talk about suffering as virtue, especially in the context of men's sport. And there's like never the question there. But then it does seem like as a society, we are way quicker to question whether that suffering is virtuous if a woman is responsible for the suffering. And so we end up holding more women accountable for the very behaviors that are ubiquitous in men's sport, if that makes sense. Totally. Um, this is something that I have thought about a lot recently because I did write something about the end of the girl boss <laughs> um, mm. that was, that was uh, slightly controversial um, among girl bosses. <laughs> but i so i i have thought about this a little bit recently and i think that uh i think that it is fair to say that in this situation we are criticizing a woman for the same behavior that same bad behavior that that men in similar positions often exhibit i think also that uh the women in these types of roles that want to lead in these sorts of ways, uh, these sorts of old school, masculine, uh, traditionally masculine, um, abusive, controlling ways are in a little bit of the, uh, live by the sword, die by the sword situation, because a lot of them also market themselves as feminist, empathetic, uh, you know, righteous leaders. So if you're going to promise people that you're going to lead in a different way and that your leadership and the, and the, the existence of you as a leader is in some way uh, special or uh, con- constitutes some sort of advancement for society, then I think that you are asking people to evaluate your leadership and find out if you're bullshitting them or not. Um, so if... And I, I think that that was part of the narrative of the show that Aldama is, you know, she could have gone into finance. She could have taken a Wall Street job out of college. She's smart. She's tough as nails. She's uh, she wanted to stay in her hometown and have a have a family and and help these athletes. Then I think that if you're going to portray yourself in that way and and hope to gain from that narrative, then people have every right to decide if the narrative is um, accurate. Um, In the case of of male coaches, you end up in a slightly different situation because nobody expects Davos winning to be a good person. Uh, As long as he wins football games, he can be whatever kind of person. Um, And I think that Dabo does get some pushback on how much he talks about religion and leading that way. Um, But I think that that sort of narrative just brings him attention from a different group of people uh, who are evaluating him based on different things and based on a different value system. So if you're, if you're asking someone to evaluate how good you are at, you know, being um, a new sort of leader and then they find out that you're just the same old sort of leader 
that's like a it's, it's a different set of criticisms from a different set of people um yeah so like i said live by the sword die by the sword situation with girl bosses i think yeah that's that's and that's very compelling uh it's a very compelling case so let's then because i keep alluding to this but we haven't really delved into it I want to know now what the framing of cheer actually is, um, which is to say, and you know, and I, I mentioned, I mentioned reader response a little while ago, like, look, there's, there's only a certain extent to which it actually matters what the intentionality of the show is. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I actually don't think like if we're analyzing cultural representation, the intentionality of the author is the least of my concerns the death of the author. Like that's not what matters. What matters is how people read it. And we started kind of from that position. And I think that's the more important position, but I also think it's kind of interesting uh, just to sort of think through the signposting in the show to a certain extent in terms of how it is setting up this issue. Because I mean, you've got the show that is about extreme harm and violence in a sport like cheerleading in a way that we, you know, we've, I think fairly meticulously gone through now. And yet the initial reaction, as you laid out, was like people just going crazy for how wonderful it all was, right? Like how it just exemplified everything great about sport, all of these wonderful American dream narratives and perseverance and, and all of that. And like, I guess I just want to know in the most simplistic terms, like, is that actually what ne- the, the Netflix crew that created this show? And I, I, sh- I should have their names in front of me. I don't have them. So I'm just going to say, I'm just going to credit Netflix in general for the show. Um, but like, is that what Netflix wanted people to get out of this? Or was Netflix, was Netflix producing an expose of harm in cheerleading? Because I, and I, I kind of felt this in your earlier take as well. That's what I felt when I was watching it. It was like, this is an expose. Maybe Navarro is trying to cover up the extent to which it is, but like, this is an expose of something horrific. Yeah. I, I was really excited that you wanted to talk about this because I, I found this to be one of the most interesting things about cheer that like sort of didn't get talked about in, in all of the other things that, that were worth discussing about the show. Um, because it, like you said, it is sort of like a question of intentionality by artists and that is like a little in the weeds for some cultural conversations. <laughs> um, but, uh, to say the least, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's something I am interested in. Um, and I, I had the same reaction that you did because I had absorbed like a week and a half, two weeks, something like that of, of takes with no context about this tv show and i expected it when i tuned in to be sort of like like almost like a soapy reality type thing that was like you know will they or won't they get the championship and they're having fun in their dorms they're college students all of this stuff you know um and it was just so not that like the the tone of the show the the people who produced it are also produce uh last chance you which is a show that is, I think, very aware of the um, sort of grinding, desperate nature of a lot of college sports, um, and uh, and I thought that I thought the show did some things to sort of smooth over some of the the more difficult narrative points uh, of the of the Navarro story um, that you might not have noticed if you didn't know a lot about college sports. Um, But 
on the whole, I don't, I don't think they wanted, they wanted or expected people to take away like some sort of sunshiny, nice story from, from the series. Um, I, I think that they were very aware that they were filming things that were in, in some sense, an expose of harm. Uh, the very matter of fact way in the first episode that the first concussed cheerleader talks about that being her fifth concussion. If you follow any other sports and especially if you follow football, you know, the, the weight of just letting an athlete talk about how many times they've been concussed. Um, But I I think that because this show was marketed, uh, you know, as a Netflix show, as sort of a reality thing, as a fun cheerleading thing, which people are sort of, uh, I think, inclined not to take seriously because of what cheerleading is. uh, A lot of the people who watched it don't, didn't have a background in sports and didn't pick up, I think, on some of that stuff. Um, Like I said earlier, a lot of the people I saw talking about it were people I know who don't watch sports, who don't, understand anything about college athletics didn't go to schools with big uh athletics programs um and i think that that for them some of those moments that like hit hard for people like us who know a lot about the culture of sports uh were just like totally lost um so you get in this weird situation that has like like a gendered dynamic to it and then also has the uh the sort of thorny issue of whether or not cheerleading is a is a sport and how it is recognized culturally um and i think that those two things sort of combined to end up with with a really weird reaction to the show and a lot of people uh and then and then our reaction to it as people with uh, a greater deal of context on college athletes. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I'm, I'm torn only because maybe I just have so little faith in like viewers that they would actually like, I guess from our perspective, it's like the athletes are taking hit after hit after hit. Like, you know, you hear all the thuds on the microphone, which you talked about in your piece and you just, it's so loud and you can see the like grimaces on their faces. You can see them and hear them talking and like whispering about it amongst themselves. But I guess I just don't have that much faith in the viewership, but maybe like, as you said, if it's, I don't know, maybe if it's people that some people who do know sports, but maybe don't know cheerleading, maybe they understand how, how, um, dangerous sports are and that sort of thing. But I don't know. I just don't think I have that much faith in the viewers. So I'm, I'm glad that other people do, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it was, it was just like a, a weird situation. I found myself sitting there watching it, trying to figure out what it was that, um, uh, that I was supposed to be taking away from this and what it was that the filmmakers thought of it. Um, Because there were some things that I thought that they were clearly disturbed by and that they were trying to show in, in, like without providing commentary about, about those things, but that they were trying to demonstrate were like some of the downsides of being a college athlete. Um, I don't, I don't think that they were trying to only do that. like I said, that there were some things that they sort of smoothed over that you wouldn't catch if you didn't know a lot about college sports uh, that were sort of, I think, a little too friendly to Navarro uh, and to Aldama. But the, 
the reaction of viewers versus what was on the screen was like more of a disconnect than I expected. Absolutely. And I guess to kind of continue this line of thought um, further um, and that one, we, we've talked sort of danced around this before, but one comparison that you make and that we made, and, and you know, I, I watched the, the, I watched cheer after I watched athlete a. So for me, the connection is really obvious, but you talk like briefly about the nature of, of physical and sexual abuse and cheerleading compared to gymnastics with the sexual abuse being completely left out of cheer even though there's a lawsuit from a former cheerleader about one of Aldama's volunteer assistants drugging and raping him. Um, and as some of our listeners might know, we wrote a piece for Jacobin recently that reviewed Athlete A, another ESPN production, as well as ESPN's 30 for 30 podca- podcast series, Heavy Metals, about how the media has portrayed the abusive nature of gymnastics to audience audiences. And in that piece, we explained that while both productions um, did a really good job of highlighting the athlete victims' voices to varying degrees, they both blamed the abuse on specific individuals. Um, athlete A blamed it on Nasser, and um, Heavy Metals blamed it on Bela and Marta Caroli, sort of, as we said, foreign communist infiltration of American gymnastics. And we argue that they pin the blame on these individuals and on this foreign communist culture in order to avoid stating the obvious which is that abuse and harm are absolutely foundational to American gymnastics and sports more generally. Now, based on your work on cheer and on harm and sports and health in other ways, uh, why do you think commentators and viewers refuse to see the obvious way that harm and abuse are foundational to American sports culture? This is a great question and something that I think about a lot because, uh, because I think about media a lot. Hmm. Uh, And I think that in sports, you end up in a situation where a lot of sports coverage that you read and see is, uh, is made by organizations with a vested interest in maintaining the status quo in sports. Uh, ESPN, for example, is is probably, I, I think, inarguably the most powerful media organization in American sports. Um, so you have not only a, an organization that's, uh, you know, employing journalists and turning out coverage of those sports, uh, but you also have them having giant contracts to show those sports. So they're in business with the leagues that they're covering in like a very fundamental way. Um, so if you are also trying to produce journalism about, those sports uh, you were in sort of a hard place because how critical can you be exactly of the structure of American sports when you are part of the structure of American sports and, and your, the uh, longevity of your organization depends on that structure remaining intact because you directly profit from that structure. So I, I spent a lot of time this summer um with the ESPN daytime talking head shows on in the background while I, while I worked because I was just really interested to see how sports media, which, you know, zillions of people, that's the way that they get a lot of their, a lot of their news uh, is, is through sports coverage. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see how, how sports media was covering the coronavirus. Um, and, you know, they had some interesting discussions on these shows, but it was something that was, 
sort of obvious to me immediately is that they none of the talking head shows ever had on any outside experts about anything but sports. Um, so they had on a lot of people talking about pandemic bubbles and coronavirus testing and things like that, but they never had anybody on who wasn't a sports person. Mm. Um, there was, and you know, I, I reach out to experts, uh, and researchers and sources all the time. It is very easy to get in contact with epidemiologists, with, uh, virologists, with, with people who work in public health. If you want, you know, someone who knows to tell you whether or not your bubble system is going to work or what, or what has to happen in order for a bubble system to work, things like that. Um, but the, the extent to which the organization keeps uh, conversations about sports sealed off to only sports people mm. and people who are employed in the promotion and, uh, and in playing of sports, um, I think really harms the, the ability for people to have deeper, more critical conversations. And because of, and because these sports are often covered in uh, in a way that uh, that sports journalists are compelled to be sort of of service to fans, uh, if you're only writing for an audience that likes um, the sport and, and is emotionally invested in the sport, um, then you're sort of limiting uh, how critical you can be there. Uh, because, you know... Uh, how much does your audience want to hear about um, why we have to completely fundamentally change the structure of college football in order to do anything, uh, any, anything positive for the athletes in it? Um, you know, nobody wants to hear that <laughs> um, in the, in the audience for, for some of these websites. So you end up in a dynamic of, of sports journalists as entertainers instead of sports journalists as journalists. So you, which just changes the, the, the angle of your coverage, it changes the, the ways in which you can, you can talk about the future of sports. Um, and uh, it means, and it means it's really hard to talk about abuse. It's really hard to talk about uh, the valorization of suffering. It's really hard to talk about, um, you know, the, uh, the labor rights of players. Um, because the a, a large portion of your audience uh, is already sort of settled on those topics and, and does not want to be challenged on those topics. And, uh, you know, depending on who you work for, the media organization you work for might be, you know, in multi-million dollar, multi-year contracts with those abusive structures. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, what you're what you're describing is the fundamental conflict of interest in the sport media complex. And it's just written all over ESPN. There's just no way for that organization or the people, those employed in the organization to engage in good faith with questions around labor and health and harm in the sports they cover because their entire business model, everything that they have is based on the status quo continuing and growing. Um, there's just there's just no reason why, other than to essentially basically just placate those who might be their critics, who they you know feel that if there's a if there's a, a, a way in which they feel like criticisms are in some way detracting from their ability to sell themselves as 
you know, objective in the moments that they need to. I mean, that would be the only reason I think why they have things like outside the lines, right? There's like little tokenistic ways in which ESPN gestures towards doing serious reporting. Um, and for me, and like you may not, I mean, you may not be the uh, anti-capitalist that I am, but for me, I just, I, I, I okay, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's no way we could see this as anything but a feature of capitalist sport, right? Because like if the, if sport is meant to exist in order to produce capital, then every actor in all of its chains and networks is going to be pulling towards that end. And that end precludes concern for harm and abuse and well-being. It's just not anyone's objective, right? So we're never, we're never going to see that happen. And that's why this, like, this system is so harmful. And I also think that's why it's also really powerful. The stuff we talked about earlier, and you were really explaining so beautifully earlier, the kind of ideological dimensions that go with it, right? Like the ways in what, because obviously we can see the coach's position, ESPN's position, you know, owners and sports, those positions are so clear, right? There's no, there's no confusion about what's going on there. But it's hard with the athletes sometimes, right? Because we often, I mean, big 10 players, you know, Jim Harbaugh, was out there on the University of Michigan's campus yesterday with players on his team demanding that they be allowed to play football in a pandemic. But there were players on that team demanding to play too, right? And we've seen this movement of players in college football demanding to play too. And it's harder to wrap one's head around. And that's why I think that those sort of ideological pieces you were getting at, right? Like the way this sort of suffering is virtue and the kind of cult dynamics and all of these ways in which we glorify the sort of process and the pain and the suffering and that harm becomes recoded instead of being harm or abuse, it gets recoded as something inherently good and virtuous, as you put it, um, no pain, no gain, right? Like the pain actually, we're actually supposed to experience the pain as we feel it as the good thing that we're aspiring towards, right? So we're re-signifying pain, even as it happens. That's an ideological process built into capitalist sport. Right. And it could be built into other forms of sport. Right. Like in, if we're talking about Cold War, as you were, Johanna, as you were bringing it up. I mean, yes, if you have a world system in which there's competition between world powers over like what the correct political economic order is. And so sport becomes like the arena for battling out that that struggle. OK, we're going to instrumentalize sport there, too. Right. And no pain, no gain works in that context. But that's not actually sport for its own end, right? Or like right. health or well-being or pleasure, right? That has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the instrumentalization of sport and of bodies and of experiences. And that's the problem. Right. Yeah. And I, I think fundamentally with, uh, with organizations like ESPN and a lot of corporatized sport, sports media, you end up in a situation of where it's like, I know so many good journalists who work in sports, who work for ESPN, who want to do good work. There are only so many places they can do any work. Um, and all of them are sort of, uh, you know, bound up in this incentive system where if you look at the in incentives that govern uh, all of the actors in sports, the companies, the owners, the teams, the management, coaches, athletes, um, they are all of those incentive systems are set up to have people um, experience harm, to have people su supplicate themselves to um, to the authority of the, the team or the coach. Um, so you end up with this cult of the coach, um, and you you know, in everything 
all of the media structure built around them, uh, broadcast, print, internet, whatever, is uh, is built with the is is built fundamentally with the granted premise that all of this is okay. Um, you cannot have a conversation about whether a sport should exist as it exists in a media environment built on the premise that it's okay. Like the, the, the flexibility within people employed in that system does not exist to let them evaluate whether or not we should be doing any of this. Um, and at least not allow them to evaluate it in a professional capacity in a way that uh, is accessible to, to their readers and to the audiences of these companies and of these teams. Um, I, I know that a lot of them do it internally. Um, you know, you can only you can only spend so much time around sports before you start to question what's going on. I think, uh, and there there are people, of course, that never end up questioning it. But if you're the type of person who uh, wants to write about sports as a part of culture, I think that eventually you end up questioning whether or not any of this should exist. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, that, that would be like so ideal, right? Um, and I guess it kind of related to that, right? Because we're sort of we're talking about the like use the whether it's like politicization or whatever uh, of sports for certain ends and how people are sort of willing to to fall in line in order to get ahead, whatever that is, or to maintain their jobs. And, you know, one question that we would like to ask is this issue of sort of like where does like race and racism fit into the series? And it was something that you kind of see come out during certain certain moments. It's 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 not highlighted that much. But, for example, you see the 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 the, the athletes tended to be kind of segregated or split up amongst racial lines, except for some people that, you know, kind of um, probably probably along class lines seem to kind of go back and forth. But then you also have, you know, just like a lot of sports movies, uh, we have like this white coach who is like the savior who's going to save all of these athletes. And she is going to, and, and, and she's a she, but the coach is going to be the ones to really make their lives that much better and to sort of help the individual realize their potential in a way that none of their families were able to do. Um, and so we would just we would just love to sort of hear some of your thoughts about about that. Yeah, like th there is like a definite white savior complex in a lot of sports. Uh, and this exists to varying degrees depending on what sport you're talking about. Because when I think of sports, I always think first and foremost of college football. Uh, that is definitely a, a dynamic that exists there. A dynamic that has been codified into Hollywood movies. You know, The Blind Side is all about white saviorism. Um, mm -hmm. And how it exists in, in especially Southern college football. So you end up with a lot of unpaid, mostly black athletes uh, put in charge of, you know, put in the charge of usually white millionaires. Um, I think the coach of Georgia's football team earns somewhere between three and $5 million a year. Mm. Um, he's a white guy from South Georgia, Kirby. Um <laughs> Yeah, let's and, shout out our friends Dabo Swinney, you know, Nick Saban <laughs> or our old friends as well. They deserve a shout out here too. Yep. Yeah. Um, so you end up with those with these guys who, in order to have the the sort of like complete psychological control they have over their programs, over their players, 
uh, over their fan bases to a certain extent. You have to have somebody who is not just selling themselves as someone who teaches people how to play football uh, because you don't have the cultural authority required to run one of these programs. If you're just a guy who teaches people how to play football, uh, you, you end up having to sell yourself as a, a leader of men type of thing. Um, someone who is going to instill values and instill, uh, you know, put you through the type of suffering that is necessary in order to become a good, empathetic, upright, right thinking citizen. Um, and that sort of fundamentally ends up being a white guy in charge of a lot of black players who are from uh, largely disadvantaged economic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, the The overwhelming majority of elite college football players are black. Um, many of them are, are from really tough financial circumstances and family circumstances. Um, so y- you end up... Uh, with this dynamic that is also like culturally sanctioned, like we as American culture definitely believes that it, it, it is good and right and, uh, and virtuous to put these young black men in the charge of these successful white men and to let those successful white men turn them into what they're supposed to be in life. Um, it is, it is, I think a very explicit sort of racial dynamic there in that, the idea that the the people best equipped to turn people into into citizens are rich white men, um, and that is that is definitely the uh, the role that a lot of these coaches end up embodying. Even the ones where I get a sense that they would rather just be football coaches instead of uh, I, I get that vibe from Nick Saban. I don't think Nick Saban wants to quote Bible verses at anybody in the the Dabo. Uh, mold um, uh, but you so you end up in order to in order to justify your cultural cachet in order to justify your paycheck in order to justify the fact that the players that you have dominion over are unpaid uh, you have to sell the idea that you're giving them something other than football skills mm-hmm. um, whether or not you are is is, is up for debate uh, but it gives you a, a greater a, a greater sense of control over the people you're coaching. It gives you um, the sort of paternalistic dynamic that uh, that is often useful in asking people to sacrifice their safety and health for you, um, and to to ask them not to push back against your requests that they sacrifice their safety and health. Um, so you have to. And it reinforces the the primacy of athletics and the primacy of sport as a cultural institution, uh, because you uh, even if you don't end up in the NFL, even if you don't end up a millionaire, even if you don't do any sports after college, you still have uh, have found personal value and personal profit in becoming the person you were supposed to be because of the the effort of the coach. Um, which licenses those coaches to control your entire lives while you're there. Absolutely. Definitely. And, and and to sort of like transition a little bit, and this is, you know, a question that I'm, I'm still tossing over myself is that, you know, what do you make of the Gabby Butler narrative? 
And, you know, this this is a window into the, the labor of a, a young social media influencer, like sort of like it is, but it isn't because of her parents role in it. And I know for me, like on the one hand, it's like, okay, here's an athlete who's able to make money off of her labor because it's not, as you mentioned earlier, because she's not an NCAA athlete. But on the other hand, of course, the role of the parents and all this is at the same time, like there are also some really horrifying moments that they show about these dynamics. So um, sort of what did you think about it? The Gabby Butler situation was fascinating, I thought, because one of my one of my other pet interests is, uh, the co- you know, influencers as a concept and how and, and how they have inserted themselves into culture and what role they play in culture. So seeing the the behind the scenes uh, of what her life is actually like um, was interesting. And you, you end up in the, you end up in this weird stage parent dynamic that exists in a lot of attention economy situations, whether it's, uh, you know, child actors, child, pop stars, things like that, um, where uh, the economic incentives of the situation uh, incentivize some truly deplorable behavior from whoever is in charge of the minors, whether it's parents, whether it's a football coach, whether it's a cheerleading coach, whoever. Um, the situation in which in which someone stands to, to profit greatly um, at a very, very young age from their talents, uh, tends to bring out the worst in the people around them, uh, who are, who are incentivized, who are supposed to be, uh, looking after them and and safeguarding their interests. Uh, I'm not sure the extent to which it is possible to truly safeguard anybody's interests when you are profiting off of them. Uh, because you're asking people to to subordinate their own interests, and people are often not really good at doing that when money is involved. Um, although I, I will say that I did find it encouraging that Gabby Butler at least gets to get paid in some respect. Yeah, yeah, no question. Well, okay. Speaking of that, we got we've we have kept you for a very very long time, um, selfishly, but we're going to keep you just a little bit longer because. And and by the way, this is something I've been I've been really delighted with in this conversation is the way we've the kind of interplay we've had between you know cheerleading and college football, bringing these things together that people don't normally think about at the same time. But I think I hope that you know people are seeing the same way that we are that there's just so much actually that brings these two different sports together, and that the kind of the logic, the harm, all of that is so similar. Um, so. I want to finish then by kind of asking you about college football, because I think we have put them in conversation in a way that's clear for folks, but you have also intimated that you are a college football fan. You stated that clearly, uh, your, your time at the University of Georgia, being a Georgia football fan, obviously you've been watching this um, just kind of horrific summer and now fall where, you know, athletes are being sacrificed um, on the gridiron to uh, the the brutal game itself, which is an inherent sacrifice in terms of the long-term consequences and concussions and whatnot, which you've talked about. And then this additional, this novel, and I think it's always worth coming back to that, coronavirus that has, you know, myriad complications we know little about. uh, And we're just, the more we learn, the more terrifying it is. 
And so there's really, to me, no compelling case that can be made that anyone is some kind of safe demographic when it comes to exposure to this virus. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems pretty clear we want to keep everyone as safe as possible from the virus so that no one, um, you know, risks any potential complications or just the direct harm that comes from the, the, the worst cases. So all of this is a long preamble, though, to say, given all of these assorted issues, given your own fandom, how do you reconcile all this? Should college football be canceled now and also gasp forever? I think that if you're if you're looking at things from a purely ethical standpoint, I think probably yeah, cancel it now, probably cancel it forever. Uh, if you're if you're just looking to make the 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 ethical argument, unless you can change really the structure of college football to both compensate the players fairly and to make the game less dangerous, um, because I, I think you know I I speak as a person with sports injuries from from adolescence that still plague me, that still change how I go about my life. So, so I know uh, a tiny bit of what, of what you're asking from athletes um, who are very, very young. Um, I played soccer growing up. Um, still got one ankle that does not really work <laughs> oh. from soccer. Um, so, so I know, you know, I am familiar somewhat with with the lifelong trade-offs you make to play sports as a kid uh, and as a young adult. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it's all, ultimately, it's just trying to figure out what the line is as far as physical risk that, that you're comfortable with and that, and that you can say that other people should be comfortable with. I think this season we shouldn't be playing uh, because I don't think that there's any reasonable way to, to safeguard the, the well-being of the athletes because largely because, and I wrote about this at the Atlantic, uh, the NCAA has painted college football into a corner in which it now cannot do a lot of the things that would, um, that would make college football safer this season because those would present a potential future legal challenge to the concept of amateurism and their ability to, to weasel out of paying uh, college football players. Um, so I, I think that right now there, there's not a way for me to say that college football should be played this season. I'm, I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch Georgia's first game. I have the BYU uh, Air Force game on in the background right now in my living room. Um, I'm going to see how I feel about it. I don't know if I'm going to watch the whole season. I don't know if I'm going to derive any pleasure from it. Um, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, and like long term, I don't. I don't know that there is like a good ethical argument for the continued existence of college football. I know that I want it to continue to exist because I enjoy watching it. Uh, I don't know that my enjoyment is a good argument for its continued existence. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I, I think that, and I know a lot of college football fans who feel like this, um, who who are both enormously concerned for the well-being of players this season and in the future, and just absolutely love 
to watch college football. Absolutely love the culture of college football. I was raised, I went to my first Georgia football game in the womb. Um, my dad and I flew across the country two years ago to, to see them play in the Rose Bowl. Like I, I am as dyed in the wool as anybody um, when it comes to college football. Um, and I know a lot of people in that situation who puzzle over this internally a lot. Um, I think that something has to give eventually. Uh, I don't know if it will be paying players or, or changing the structure of the game to make it less physically catastrophic. Um, hopefully it will be both. Um, but it, it does feel to me like we're getting to the point where uh, public perception is cha- changing. I looked at some uh, perception data for the uh, piece that I wrote at work and in the course of only, I think it was less than a decade, I think it was like seven years, um, people, the the perception of college football fans changed from, they don't need to be paid to like, they should be allowed to, you know, profit on their name and likeness. Uh, the majority opinions shifted really, really quickly in a really short period of time. And I think that we're still in, in major flux with, uh, how people perceive college sports and perceive the rights of athletes. Uh, I think that, that this season will hopefully push that a little, for, little bit further down the road, um, especially as we start to find out more about what the long-term consequences of COVID are. Um, that, that is not something that, that is known right now, but I, I think that there is some preliminary data suggesting that a lot of people, even young, extremely healthy people, um, a lot of them will experience um, at least medium-term complications from this, um, if not long-term. So I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling at this point because my my thoughts about college football and 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 its ethics are, are sort of disorganized, probably as a self-protection method. <laughs> No, I mean, it, you know, it makes it makes sense that someone who, you know, was really raised in that environment, that these are really difficult issues that you're grappling with. And something that I think a lot of listeners and ho- hopefully more football fans, as you said, hopefully more people are really struggling with this and having these challenges than at least like we may think they are, because that would just be great. Um, but I, I agree with your point that it probably is in flux um, quite a bit. So we'll just have to sort of see how that to what extent that changes moving forward and sort of to your point about your, uh, your piece, um, just want to note that we are going to link it in the show notes as well as the piece on cheer that we've been talking about for most of the podcast. And we just want to say, Amanda, thank you so, so very much for joining us today. This was like such a fantastic conversation. I feel like we could have talked for like hours, um, but we've taken yeah. up way too much of your time already. So thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. These are, are some of the issues that I, I find most fascinating and most difficult to art- articulate. So uh, I'm always excited for a chance to, to chat about this stuff. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.